Hi, Aaron Hinkin here. Welcome to episode number two of WYPR's Life in the Balance. This is a monthly radio show about people, specifically people whose lives are at the root of so many of the policy discussions that we hear on these public radio airwaves. The policy talk and the analysis are important precisely because they are about real people, the people who represent what is at stake behind the numbers and behind the statistics, people whose lives literally hang in the balance. What we're going to hear on this program is a fair share of thoughtful analysis from the folks in the policy and academic and nonprofit worlds. But on each episode of this program, those conversations are going to be inspired by and in service of one person's firsthand account of his or her own life. Last month in our first episode, we heard the story of former prisoner Danny Miller, and we took his story as the springboard for a larger conversation about the struggles that former inmates face after being released from incarceration. You can find that episode, by the way, uh, on the WYPR site or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, a different kind of story and a different set of issues. In June, Baltimore's annual Pride Festival paraded through the streets of our city, a celebration of the LGBT community. A month later, we heard President Trump issue a ban on transgender people serving in the military. Acceptance and rejection. The stark political tug of war dominates the news cycle surrounding LGBT issues, but there are layers and layers of subtleties behind the headlines. One of those subtleties, for example, is the unique set of challenges facing older gay and trans people. People who remember when the idea of a pride parade uh, safely walking through the city was an impossible dream. Many have only come out recently, and they're struggling with a long history of confusion, shame, and guilt. Our conversation today is inspired by the remarkable story of a transgender woman named Autumn. As you're about to hear, she transitioned late in life just a few years ago. I'm 61 years young, but um, technically I'm 18. (laughs) No, I am 61, and I'm proud of it. When I was in my 40s, 30s, and beyond that, I remember one time at the age of 16, I told people, after I get 50, I don't think life is worth living. I'm serious. And I remember thinking I would be dead by 50. I was just not happy with myself. Now I'm 10 years and one above that, right? And I am so happy. When I was in the fourth grade, I stopped playing the violin because people in West Baltimore was going to hurt me because they said you were gay or something. I know I'm a fourth grader and I'm playing the violin, so I started playing trumpet. I'm going back to playing the guitar now, but I, um, I was always being attacked. So by my family being Christians, right, I was praying to God that he take this evil thing away from me. I'm supposed to be this male person. Not this feminine person. I'm not supposed to be looking at James Bond wanting to be the Bond girl. I'm supposed to be wanting to be James Bond or whatever, right? So I prayed to God to take this away from me. I prayed so many years to take it away from me and, and, and what have you. In 1975, I joined the Marine Corps because I felt this was going on inside of me. I only stayed in there from July to October. They said the Marine Corps would Make a few good, looking for a few good men. So when I when I when I went to the Marine Corps, I said, "Yeah, this is going to do this because the Marine Corps they should be able to take this feminine enmity away from me, and so forth." It didn't work. 
The words of Autumn, a 61-year-old transgender woman sharing some of the struggles she faced growing up as a man and feeling ashamed for identifying as a woman. We're going to hear more of Autumn's story as the hour progresses, the struggles she's faced on the road to transitioning, and how her life has changed since then. This is Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin, and listening along to Autumn's story with us is Nate Sweeney. Nate is the executive director of Chase Brexton's LGBT Health Resources Center. Autumn receives counseling and health services through that center. And Nate, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Before we talk about Autumn, uh, tell me more about the center at Chase Brexton, its history and how you serve the community. Sure, absolutely. So Chase Brexton started in 1978 as a gay men's STD clinic. A number of folks who felt like they could not go to other healthcare venues to receive the healthcare they needed and wanted something, uh, a place where they could feel more comfortable sharing their health needs. Uh, As Chase Brexton began to respond to the HIV AIDS crisis in the 1980s, the mission expanded to those infected with HIV, so not just the LGBT community. Well, it's very hard for uh, a doctor who's taking care of, let's say, a woman who is HIV positive and seeing her children without health care. So we expanded uh, from those infected with HIV to those affected by HIV. In 1999, we uh, expanded again to become a federally qualified health center, meaning that we open our doors to anyone who's in need of health care, regardless of their ability to pay. Uh, And since that time, we've continued to grow to the point where we're now at 40,000 patients across five different locations in Maryland. Uh, Throughout all that time, um, serving the LGBT community was our origin and what we've continued to do. So today, um, we know that we're still continuing to grow. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was start an LGBT health resource center. So two years ago, we opened up the center to start uh, finding new and different ways to serve the LGBT community. I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate how important it is for there to be health services specifically for LGBT people. Uh, Why? What unique challenges do they face? Uh, Plenty. So the first is... uh, For many uh, LGBT elders, they've faced a lifetime of discrimination in health care. The subtle pieces of, you know, forms that said, uh, uh, fill out your name and who is your husband or wife. Uh, Just all of those pieces that made people not feel welcome. Uh, Sharing information with a doctor and then being told that uh, they were going to hell for, um, you know, how they lived their life. So those pieces have added up to uh, people who really were afraid to engage with healthcare. Um, The training of uh, medical providers around LGBT health is really just beginning and really emerging now as something that uh, a lot of medical schools are looking at. But particularly for transgender folks, there's almost no training on how to provide gender-affirming care in medical training. Let's zoom in on Autumn's story now. We heard her say at uh, the age of 61, she feels like a teenager. (laughs) Is this a common experience for people transitioning later in life? I mean, it's a new lease on life. Uh, It it absolutely can be. Um, You know, transition is something that's very, very individualized. uh, But there are a lot of people who feel a yoke coming off their shoulders when they're able to live authentically and be able to share with the world who they truly are after keeping it hidden for so many years. And there can be a a true liberation that comes with that. Yeah, we heard her also talking about how desperately she tried to deny her feelings, Um, joining the Marine Corps, 
uh, denying the feminine parts of herself. Talk about her experience and that sort of long phase of denial. That's one of the pieces that really just resonated with me about Trump's uh, Twitter ban of transgender folks serving in the military. Transgender Americans have enlisted in the military at twice the rate of the general population. And there's some common narratives that you hear running through that. Um, uh, Oftentimes, uh, it's trans women who, just like Autumn said, I'm going to the most masculine place on the planet to really try and be in an environment where this feeling is suppressed as much as possible. And the flip of that is a lot of transgender men who uh, enlist uh, because they want to be in a hyper-masculine environment. And don't like uh, the feminine pieces that people um, assume they're interested in because they think that they are a woman. We're going to turn back to Autumn's story now. A bit of background uh, before we hear this next excerpt. Um, Autumn told us that her father was gay, um, but never officially came out. Um, Everyone in the family knew about his sexuality, though, and this led to this kind of general, generalized feeling of paranoia in the family surrounding homosexuality. My mother was very afraid for me because I think she saw this in me. And um, one time, my friend who became a transvestite, I went to see him one time. And she said, you're just like your father. And she knew that would hurt me because I knew that my father was gay, right? And one time, I seen, we lived near a place called Club Astoria in, in West Baltimore. And they had women who were transvestites. And they were, oh, they were dressed to the nines. And I said, boy, they look good. My mother pulled me to the side and said, don't you ever say that in public again. Don't you ever say that again. So I was always afraid to come out. I am free now. I am free. That's, all, that's the main thing I could just say, I am free now. You don't like me, that's your problem. It's not mine anymore. You know what I mean? It do worry me sometimes when I see politics, like they might try to change things and so forth. That do give, kind of concern me a little bit, right? But I'm who I am, and I'm just going to have to deal with that. You hear so many different emotions in Autumn's voice. Relief, triumph, defiance, and also anxiety. Uh, Nate Sweeney of Chase Brexton, what can you say about that mix of emotions, and how do you help someone navigate through that whole emotional minefield, especially an older person? Well, I I think, um, you know, in Autumn's voice, you just hear such resiliency. You you hear how she's navigated challenges and found inner strength, found joy, and used that to uh, propel herself forward to find her own happiness. I think in a lot of elders, uh, we start to see, as, you know, is common with many older adults, uh, the shedding of things that aren't as important and things that you put up with in your life that people stop having a tolerance for. Um, there was a uh, photo exhibit that we brought to the LGBT Health Resource Center two years ago called Upon These Shores by uh, photographer Jess Dugan. And it is uh, a series of photographs of trans elders. As uh, Jess toured this uh, photo exhibit around the country, they found that um, people really, especially older people, started to resonate with folks who had transitioned later in life. One of the things that Jess found as uh, the exhibit toured around the country is she got a lot of reaction from cisgendered, heterosexual elders who were in their 80s and 90s and said, I understand what this person who at 85 is finally transitioning because 
you just are ready to let the things that other people are judging you fall behind and be yourself. Old people in general are just tired of putting up with crap. It, <laughs> yes. And that's something that we really need to respect them for. That's an interesting observation. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the things that um, we work on in the LGBT Health Resource Center is a holiday that we've added to the national calendar called National Honor Our LGBT Elders Day. Uh, it's on the national calendar on May 16th each year. Uh, the, the photo exhibit was part of the lead up to that day. And it's, you know, a chance for younger LGBT folks to look to our elders and learn lessons from them. Uh, you know, hearing Autumn's story about being a young person and how she was forced to uh, not talk about things. Um, the elders who lived through that era and have changed that era have changed that era for younger people. And so uh, it's the intergenerational conversations that need to take place in the LGBT community really are about learning lessons from people like Autumn and uh, or folks who came out early in life and battled for the rights and privileges that we celebrate today. You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. We're speaking with Nate Sweeney of the Chase Brexton LGBT Health Center and uh, listening to the story of a trans woman named Autumn. I want to play an excerpt now uh, where Autumn tells the story of how she ultimately came out to her family. I wimped out. I called them on the phone. <laughs> I called them on the phone. I told my sister, and oh, that was not easy. So my sister paused and was my twin. I told her first. She said, Okay, um, you, um, well, you are your father's child. I said, yeah. But <laughs> she said, okay, well, uh, she, well, she came around, and she came around. It didn't take long. And then her son said, why in the world did you wait so long to change? You mean, you taught me how to be a man. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I was fighting this all along. But anyway, his grandchildren, his children are very nice to me. And he is very nice. My niece, my older sister's daughter, and her son has been very, very, you know, I mean, I was nervous, nervous to say, but they, they were very accepting and so forth. There's a younger generation and so forth. And so my family, they didn't give me too much grief. My brother's the only one that said, well, I got, I got another sister now, but I don't know if I can get used to seeing you dressed in women's clothing, right? But, um, yeah, you know, I'm going to call you Autumn. Um, and so to this day, we have not seen each other. We have talked to each other on the phone, but we have not seen each other. 61-year-old Autumn telling the story of her late-life transition and coming out to her family about it. Uh, with grace and humor and honesty, I might add. Uh, Nate Sweeney of Chase Brexton, it seems like Autumn had, a, I, I guess, a relatively positive coming out experience. I assume this maybe isn't always the case, though. That's correct, um, particularly for, uh, you know, I think society has moved the needle quite a bit on lesbian, gay, bisexual folks, but uh, the process of coming out as transgender, there's still lots of family rejection um, at any point across the lifespan. But, you know, the the longer you're alive, the more relationships you have. And uh, those relationships, when they are... Um, when those relationships end because of someone living their authentic life, it's very painful. And uh, we, we work with a lot of elders who 
really end up in very isolated situations. Um, we, we work with some folks who waited until their parents pass away before they decide to transition mm. um, because they knew that uh, the, the pain of that rejection might be too much or uh, that uh, they didn't want that relationship to be soured. There's so many factors that can go in because uh, older adults uh, coming out later in life They've just navigated so much more of their life and have so many more people to come out to. Nate Sweeney is executive director of the Chase Brexton LGBT Health Center. Nate, thank you very much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you to Autumn for sharing her story. And Nate, uh, just before I let you go, um, let folks know how they can be in touch with the health center and uh, make use of your services. Absolutely. If uh, there's LGBT older adults that want to connect socially to other elders, uh, to come to some of our support groups for LGBT elders or long-term survivors of HIV, give us a call. We're at uh, 410-837-2050, extension 1049, and we can help navigate you to uh, services for LGBT older adults. I'm Aaron Henkin, and you're listening to Life in the Balance. Coming up, when Autumn was still living life as a man, she was married to a woman. Now, they're going clothes shopping together. A new kind of marriage for a new kind of life. We'll be right back. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance, a radio program where we dedicate each episode to understanding one person's story and exploring the issues, social, economic, political, that have shaped that story for better or worse. We're spending this hour with a 61-year-old trans woman named Autumn. Because Autumn transitioned later in life, she faces a lot of unique challenges. One of these challenges is coming to terms with the concept of transgender and defying what being a trans woman means to her after living the majority of her life as a man. Transgender, who I am, I am a woman inside. I have never been happy being a male. I have never been. Um, A lot of the things that I did was because I looked like a male. Now, I want my insides to match my outsides. Um, I put on my own makeup now, and when I look in the mirror, I like who I see. Years ago, I could have on the most expensive male suit, and I did not like the way I look. I never did. People, oh, you look great. You look wonderful. I could have on a pair of blue jeans and some heels and so forth, whatever, and I think I look like the bomb. I'm very happy. In 2009, I went to a workshop, and the program showing you how to become a lady and so forth, and that was the first time on that February day in 2009, I came out with heels in a wig, in a dress. And I don't think I look like Beyonce, but I looked in the mirror and I just loved what I see. For the first time, I was happy with what I saw in that mirror. You know what I mean? Now, like I said, you know I mean, I know I got my flaws and so forth, but I love what I see in the mirror. I love, I like the fact that I'm no longer in a box. People don't have control over me. This is who I am. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. I like who I am. When I go to the great beyond, I'm going to go there happy, not afraid or, or, or living in the shadows or should have, could have. Though my only regret is that sometimes I say, maybe I should, it would have been nice if I came out earlier. 61-year-old trans woman, Autumn, sharing her story with us this hour and listening along now to her story with us is Reverend Merrick Moses. 
He is an ordained old Catholic priest and the first black field organizer for Equality Maryland, a civil rights organization. He served as the vice chairperson of Baltimore Black Pride and is currently the community liaison in the office of the state's attorney in Baltimore City. And Reverend Moses, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Reverend, I want your thoughts on what you're hearing in Autumn's story. But first, let me ask you a little bit more about yourself. Um, What is your relationship to the trans community? Community. I am a member of the trans community. I am a man of trans experience. You're also a spiritual leader, an old Catholic priest. Uh, describe a little bit about your spiritual journey and the, the role you play. Oh, wow. That, that's, a, that's a, um, how should I say, that's a cup of coffee and a bottle of wine conversation. <laughs> but uh, briefly, um, I was born and raised Roman Catholic. And then um, because I was assigned female at birth, when I found out I could not be a priest, um, it broke my heart. Um, I've uh, dabbled and I still do practice Buddhism. Um, I have, um, I've traveled into uh, traditional African religions. But in terms of my old Catholicism, the old Catholic Church um, got its name because it harkens back to the um, idea that um, the the Pope is not supreme over all. He is seen as the Bishop of Rome and is called old Catholic because we harken back to the times where the bishops as a collective made decisions as opposed to one person. And um, this church broke away from the uh, Roman church during the Vatican I Council over the doctrine of papal infallibility. On now to Autumn and her story. We just heard Autumn say how she's content knowing that when she goes to the great beyond, she's going to have no regrets. I want to hear your reactions as a spiritual leader to uh, people transitioning, especially late in life. Um, We're told by Jesus that the truth will set you free. And so when you walk in your most most authentic self, you are actually accessing the divinity within you and in your life. Um, So Artem's story resonates with me and resonates with a lot of trans folks who have been in this struggle, um, the struggle to walk authentically on the earth. So I definitely can feel what she's saying. Say a little bit more about that notion of living one's life authentically and the spiritual implications of that idea. I know there are people who can pull uh, chapters and verses out of the Bible on both sides of this argument. Well, I think that when when we um, start to weaponize the Bible against people, then we are missing the point of the advent of Christ. And so when I say walking authentically, if I am told, uh, particularly in the epistles, that who the Son has freed is free indeed, and I've grabbed onto that in my own life, and part of my process of liberation is authentically walking in who I am. And although I was assigned female at birth, um, that never really resonated with me. And so if I am holding on to this idea that I'm trying to live out my identity, I am identifying with Christ, then Christ demands that I be free and I want that freedom. And so part of my journey to my own liberation is walking in my authentic truth as who I am as male. Um, And it also speaks to the idea that um, gender in and of itself, yes, is a social uh, construct. There are biological components regarding sex. However, we do know that throughout millennia there have been transgender people. Um, They weren't necessarily – we weren't necessarily called trans, uh, but there were gender uh, variant people. And in fact, NPR has a map of uh, cultures in which uh, gender variance is recognized and coincidence 
incidentally, it's all over the world. So this is not just some type of Western phenomenon. Trans people have been here for millennia. It's interesting to hear you bring up uh, studying Buddhism. Um, Autumn shared some of her own spiritual beliefs with us, and uh, I'd like for you to hear what, uh, what she had to say. I'm more of a spiritual person. I believe there's as a creator out there, there's something greater than us, and I do not believe it's a man. I believe that it, I actually, I know they say sometimes we create God in our own image, but I believe that whoever created us, right, is both male or female, or there's, cause, or it, there's a female involved. Because I don't think it's all male, and I don't think that the, 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 the Bible is the holy grail. I don't think any religion, if I had to do anything, the word I like to use sometimes is Buddhist because it means enlightened. Not that I believe in the, the whole faith, but it means enlightened. So anything that talks about enlightenment, that's what I believe in. There's something greater than me. Something helped me to be, something caused me to be born in 1956 and not 1856. Something caused me to be born, you know, to come out when I did. Something protected me when I was drunk in the street you know, and didn't get hurt. Something greater than me has been guiding my life. So I'm going to tap into that the best I can. I don't know what it is, but I just know it is. It's like science say it's a dark energy out there. It's an energy I don't know, but it's there. Reverend Moses, how do you interpret what you hear in Autumn's theology? It's abstract. It takes a little bit from here and there, and it's a search, isn't it? It is a search. I believe that spirituality is a practice. There are a lot of people who attend services on Sunday and are not spiritual. And there are people who don't even enter any type of house of worship. And they are some of the most spiritual people that I know. And we know that spirit has no gender and that we've incarnated into these bodies for a reason. So when I hear Sister Autumn talk, it is in line with my own experiences and the experiences of of many folks in terms of um, understanding um, this being that lives within you and around you and is through all creation and is able to permeate some of the most darkest moments. Um, she talks about feeling protected when she was inebriated in the street. She talks about her idea of transcending time and, and being embodied in this place in this time. And that really resonates with me because I do feel the same. Talk to me about that chasm between spirituality and organized religion. Um, gay and trans people can feel ostracized by uh, some of the strictures of organized religion. Um, how can they reconcile with their uh, with their faith? Well, I think that for me, in terms of reconciling with faith, um, I'm also, I, I would consider myself a Buddhist humanist as well, in that I believe that when we cherish someone's humanity, then that transcends everything. Um, what we do know um, about the Bible, we've gotten second, third, and fourth hand. Um, Jesus never spoke English. He spoke <laughs> Aramaic. So we don't actually know exactly how he said what he said. We have an idea. But we do know this, that we're human beings. We do know this, that we're, we were all born from a womb. We do know this, that we all have some sort of lifespan on the earth. There is a purpose to this thing. And I think Sister Autumn um, speaks to a longing to not just be in that space, but to know that space. And in knowing that space, she knows herself. You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin, and I'm here along with trans activist Reverend Merrick Moses. 
We are listening this hour to the story of a trans woman named Autumn. We're going to turn back to Autumn's story now and a little bit of context here as we do. When she was still living as a man, she was married um, for a second time, actually after her first wife died. Autumn told us her first marriage was very unhappy because she was struggling so much privately uh, with her gender identity. But she met and married this second wife, uh, a woman so lovely and so perfect, in Autumn's uh, opinion, that Autumn was convinced that um, this woman would be the magic solution to Autumn's internal conflict. Unfortunately, it did not work out that way, lovely as the wife is. Uh, And not long after they were married, Autumn sat the new wife down and put her cards on the table. And I was so sad that day because I said, I'm about to drop a bomb on her today. It was in, um, I think it was in November of um, 2009. And I'm about to drop a bomb on her. No, 2008. And uh, she didn't see it coming, but I did, right? And I remember when we was upstairs talking and we had a little wedding picture, not of us, but of a couple, you know, somebody painted. And I remember telling her, and I remember just sitting there, and I could barely look her in the face. And I was just telling her, and she was hurt, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think she thought I found this nice person, and now, wow, you know what I mean? And so she was so cute, in my opinion, because her anger was, she gave me a big kick, but it didn't really hurt. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? She was very disappointed. But um, I said, if you want a divorce, I can understand that because this is not what you planned. And so we went to a therapist together. And afterward, we decided that we were going to stay together. She said, I'm going to stay with you, but we're no longer the way it was before. See, the sad thing about it was that she realized that, she said, that means that all that stuff you did before, the flowers and all that, was a lie. You know what I mean? Even when I was intimate with her, that was a lie because here I was fantasizing in order to satisfy myself and her that I was with a male. And she just said, this, your whole, our whole life was a lie, right? But she's, she's still my friend and so forth. So that was not an easy uh, conversation. Um, and uh, sometimes I get a little emotional about it because it was not easy. And she didn't do anything wrong. She was straight up with me. And here I was the one who was being deceitful and so forth. Listening along to uh, Autumn's story with us is Reverend Merrick Moses. And Reverend Moses, um, how often do people try to squelch their authentic identities by entering into traditional marriages like this? Uh, It's more common than not. And then also I want to remind people that particularly in certain ethnic communities, marriage is a central part of being an adult. So after a bit of time, if you're not married, then there starts to be questions around your orientation. And so I'm not surprised this happened to Autumn because this is a thing um, for, for people. And, you know, oftentimes people say, well, if I just get married, this will go away. Um, You know, particularly I've met a lot of uh, folks in the black church who feel like, well, if you just marry someone, it'll go away. Or you need to pray and get married and you just need a good woman or you just need a good man. And not really understanding the seed that the spirit has put into your life can't be prayed away, nor can it be wished away or married away. It is actually part of yourself. As it turns out, this 
part of Autumn's story takes a really remarkable turn. She was able to establish an entirely new relationship with her wife after coming out. Uh, and as we're about to hear, they remain incredibly close. I remember, she, <laughs> I hope you don't mind me telling this, but she helped me get my bra sacks together. <laughs> she has been really, really supportive. Sometimes... We had gotten so close. We're almost like sisters now. Instead of husband and wife like sisters now, Autumn, you're not going to wear that outside. Sometimes I want to wear some shorts, shorts, shorts. She goes, Autumn, you're going to? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, Jeanette, let me do this. You know what I mean? It's pride or something, right? I'm going to do this. But she is so, she is such a wonderful person, and she is my best friend. And she will not let me go out the house looking any kind of way. Autumn, you got lint in your hair. And stuff. Like She is so wonderful. She is a beautiful person. The thing that I tell her, though, is that if Mr. Wright comes in your life, I'm getting out the way. She said, I don't know if I'm looking for Mr. Wright now. She's my friend. She's my friend. Still married, but living together, I guess, more like sisters now, um, by the sound of it. How remarkable is that, Reverend Moses? And what does it say to you about love and resilience? It says to me, um, in terms of Autumn and the person that she married, that they are two remarkable individuals. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out like that uh, for trans folks. Um, Oftentimes, um, trans people experience very, very, very um, devastating intimate partner violence. It could range from out trying to, you know, a partner threatening to out someone to um, actual violence. In fact, um, there was a trans man named Kashmir Red who was uh, brutally murdered a couple of weeks ago by his um, partner. There are countless stories of particularly trans men being raped, being bullied, um, being lied on by their partners um, who were cisgender female because that partner did not like the fact that the person transitioned. Um, Autumn talked about her uh, wife at the time talking about she was lying to her. And so that is often a refrain that folks have heard. But I would gently say that how do you tell someone the most intimate parts of yourself when you may not have the words for it? And as a black person in America living in a community that oftentimes how can I say, foster secrecy to protect others. Like what stays in the house, what says in the house stays in the house. Um, what's done in the house stay in the house. And so when you're living with this secret, um, you're feeling like, well, I'm going to let my partner down. I'm going to let my wife down. I'm letting my community down. And so for a lot of trans folks, People may consider suicide because they don't want to do that, and they don't want to be ostracized for being who they are. It's not easy walking in black body, but it's definitely not easy walking in black trans body. Reverend Merrick Moses, community liaison in the state's attorney office, old Catholic priest and LGBTQ activist. I want to thank you for listening to Autumn's story with us and for being here today. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. I'm Aaron Henkin, and you're listening to Life in the Balance. Coming up for many trans people, the decision to wait to come out is based on fear of judgment, even physical violence. As you heard, Autumn is going to tell us how she grew up in a community where being gay or trans could get you killed, how that fear is still affecting her. That's next.
Welcome back. I'm Aaron Henkin, and you're listening to Life in the Balance, a WYPR original program, a policy talk program anchored by and in service to a real first-person story, a story told by someone whose life quite literally hangs in the balance. Today we've been hearing the story of a 61-year-old transgender woman named Autumn. She did not make the decision to transition until late in life. And as you're going to hear, that decision was based in fear. At one time, if people thought you were gay or uh, trans, uh, transvestite or whatever, you can get killed or beat up and nobody would come to your aid. You had no law to protect you and so forth. When I got involved with the um, Transgender uh, Leadership Academy and we was out campaigning in 2013, I was out there passing out cards, you know, and so forth, right? So that, you know, we changed the law here in Maryland and so forth, right? You know, and I was... Very, and I was also pleased with how some people were very receptive to that. One lady told me, I'm glad that you came out and so forth, and came out here and, and, and talked about that. But yeah, back then, I had no law to protect me and so forth. And I was really afraid of being beaten up and so forth. I was, that's why I stopped playing the violin in, in the fourth grade, because I didn't want to get beat up. I didn't want to get hurt, you know what I mean, and so forth, right, or worse. Fear, a big part of Autumn's life story for many years, a majority of her life. Listening to Autumn's story along with us in this segment is Alex Kent. She is the Program Replication Coordinator for SAGE. That's an organization providing advocacy and services for LGBT elders. And uh, Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. First off, what is SAGE? Is it an acronym? And uh, what, (laughs) what do you do there? Uh, So SAGE uh, used to stand for Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders. We now are just SAGE, um, and we are the oldest and largest organization in the U.S. dedicated to improving the lives of LGBT older adults. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening along to Autumn's story. We just heard Autumn talking about how fearful she was to come out as a young person. Is this a common story? Do you hear this story a lot among older LGBT people that you work with? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that fear is very well founded. A lot of what I do when I work with um, younger LGBT people and, and younger service providers is sort of work to remind them that, you know, a lot has changed very recently in the past couple of decades. And that's wonderful and has provided a lot of protection, as Autumn was starting to allude to. But um, it doesn't undo the life experience of an LGBT person who lived 40, 50, 60 of their years in a world where they could very realistically be fired, institutionalized, beaten up, harassed, um, you know, otherwise treated very poorly for their real or perceived identity. To what degree is prejudice and violence still aimed at LGBT populations today, whether institutionally or otherwise? And do young gay and trans people have the same level of violence and prejudice to deal with as Autumn's generation did? Institutionally, um, you know, transgender people certainly still have difficulty accessing health care. We know that uh, from a 2015 study, uh, 50% of trans folks at a minimum had to educate their own health care providers about transgender health care. Um, And that's sort of the better case scenario of what some people experience. People still experience harassment. They, uh, a reasonable number, have experienced providers refusing to work with them when they found out that they were transgender. So that's institutionally, you know, a a huge uh, issue of discrimination and really amounts to sort of a a level of violence, if you think about it, in terms of the, the effects of not being able to access health care. I never really thought about that. I guess it's kind of a... 
double whammy for older gay, lesbian, and trans people. Uh, because when you're older, whether you're gay, straight, lesbian, trans, or otherwise, you're going to be going to the doctor more often. Absolutely. You're more involved in the medical care system. And then on top of that, you're, you've got all the extra baggage of having lived so many more decades politically in a politically sort of a, oppressive environment. There's a high percentage of LGBT older adults that are not out to their healthcare provider about their sexual orientation or gender identity, which is really a barrier to getting the full level of care that they need. Um, and we also know a lot of people who simply don't go to the doctor because they don't feel safe. And, you know, people who would rather suffer and, and be ill and, and, you know, we talk about going into institutionalized care settings, they'd rather be found dead in their homes than have to live through being in an institutional setting. And for transgender folks in particular, a lot of times it comes down to, you know, how sick do they have to be for it to be worth it to subject themselves to an unknown uh, level of treatment in a medical setting. I want to turn back to Autumn's story now. It might seem almost absurd to bring this up in light of the seriousness of what you were just talking about, Alex. But, you know, we hear all these news stories about the political uproar over bathroom legislation, (laughs) right? Uh, And uh, the clip that I'm going to play from Autumn's experience, I think, really puts that debate into context in in a very simple and very personal way. A friend of mine and I went down to see, I think it was La Carcifo, down at the Hippodrome. And of course, I had to relieve myself. I was a little nervous because the way I, because I was, you know, the way who I was, I was afraid of using the ladies' bathroom. But my friend talked up for me to somebody and he gave me, and I got a chance, and I used one of the ladies' bathrooms, right, and so forth, right, because I don't feel comfortable going to men's bathroom. I remember I was at um, Nordstrom out there in Tallison, and I told my friend, I said, look, I'm not going to the bathroom. I got to go home. I'm going to go home. He said, no, 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 we're not leaving here until you use that lady's room. And then he sat out there and waited and see what people said. He said, nobody screamed, nobody said anything, and so forth, right? So one of the biggest things is going to, is, is going to the ladies' restrooms and so forth, right? Because, uh, you know what I mean? You know, and I, and I do everything appropriate there, right? But the thing is that that was one of my greatest fears. And another thing is that I don't want to see, even though I do the best I can with makeup and so forth, I said, I don't want people to look at me and say, hmm, that looks like a guy or something like that. Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, I don't like Beyonce. You know, I tell people, I call me Beyonce. <laughs> but the thing is that, so I, that, that worries me sometimes. I want to make sure that, I look great when I go out or, you know, and so forth, right? That I look appropriate. The political stakes of the simplest daily acts, as told by 61-year-old trans woman Autumn. Listening along with us is Alex Kent of SAGE. That's an organization providing advocacy and services for LGBT elders. Alex, how often do you hear stories like this, and what's your reaction? Oh, very commonly. I mean, that, again, it's a very well-founded fear that, you know, using the restroom is going to cause a problem. And it's ridiculous when you think about it. And people just need to pee, right? And this idea that, you know, it's it's going to cause some kind of a threat if you allow transgender people to use the bathrooms that, you know, match their identities is, is ridiculous. I have never heard of a transgender person doing anything in a bathroom other than trying to very quietly go about their business and not, you know, attract any attention. I mean, certainly not trying to harm other people. 
And um, and it's really important. I mean, it, again, it is. It's the simplest thing. And, and so for someone to be able to say, oh, well, I have to go home because I have to go to the bathroom, that's, that's not uncommon. And that's a sad commentary on our society, I think. And, you know, I hear Autumn's story and I realize someone in her situation is like more nervous than anyone else about the whole scenario. Absolutely. Especially, I imagine, her being older, 61 years old, is this, I mean, you, I wonder, considering that you specialize in advocacy and services for LGBT elders, is this a particularly big deal for folks who have, you know, had more years sort of um, with uh, traditional um, norms and social behaviors kind of hammered into them? I mean, I think, you know, Autumn talked about being very concerned about how she looked and whether people could sort of tell that she, it wasn't what she said, but really that she's transgender just by the way she looks. And the reality is that when people transition later in life, their transitions often are a little more obvious to the, you know, casual observer. I mean, you know, they may look fabulous, but some people may may question what they look like, which is unfair. I mean, there are lots of different ways to to do gender and to express gender, and everyone has the right to express it how they feel. And, you know, but but certainly when people don't pass, and I say that with quotation marks, um, they are more nervous out in society because they're more subject to uh, discrimination and harassment. You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin, and along with LGBT elder advocate Alex Kent, we're listening to the story of a trans woman named Autumn. We're going to turn back to her story now, and after hearing her talk at length about everything that's changed for her since her transition, it's interesting to hear her talk also about the way in which she has stayed exactly the same as a person. Autumn still likes to sing. Some people, is this one guy on my job, I love him. He cracks me up. He calls me Elvis. And I said, Beyonce. He said, well, until you do a Beyonce, I'm going to call you Elvis. Because I used to, I still do this. And people, do, even though they see me as a, as a woman, they say, we still want you to do that uh, jailhouse rock. <laughs> and I still do it. And they still like it. You know what I mean? I've been doing it in the wig and hair and all that, and they still like it. And, you know what I mean? I still like to draw, right? I still like to do my history classes and so forth, right? I still like telling my bad jokes, my little corny jokes and so forth, right? So th- those are things about me that, that, that hasn't changed and so forth, right? I mean, and like, like, like I love when my, my clients say, I've been telling a joke to somebody, and then they'll give me one back. They say, like, can I just tell you this little bad joke? They said, who's the one person that can hold up a train and never do jail time. And people look at me, I go, a bridesmaid at a wedding. <laughs> so I still tell my corny jokes and so forth, right? And what have you. Don't get and what have you. That's autumn. That's part of autumn. That's been my personality all the time. I still like to sing. I still like, like I said, talking about history. Some things change, some things stay the same. Alex Kent, what does Autumn's story say about what makes us who we are as a person, male or female or otherwise? What kind of lesson is there in what we just heard? I think for a lot of people, when they learn that someone is transgender, all of a sudden that's all they see, right? And everything about that person's life is suddenly related to their transgender identity, which is not the case. I mean, each of us has a gender identity. Each of us has a sexual orientation. Each of us has a race, a background, a, you know, a language. All those pieces intersect to make us who we are. And 
Some of them are more important than others, but we get to determine that, not the people that we're interacting with. And so when people see a transgender person as just a transgender person, they're really undermining who that person is and um, and ignoring a lot of the other components that make every individual unique and wonderful. Alex Kent, Program Replication Coordinator for SAGE, an organization providing advocacy and services for LGBT elders. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to WYPR's Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Today's program has been inspired by and dedicated to Autumn. And uh, we're going to let Autumn have the last words today. Let people just, you know what I mean, be, uh, to help out in society and so forth, right? The old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Get to know who I am. Read inside of me and so forth. You know what I mean? And you'll see I'm not a bad person. You know what I mean? You don't have to be afraid of me or anybody like me. We just want to live our lives because we have a short lifespan. You know what I mean? People think 100 years is a long time. It is very short. You know what I mean? 70, 80, it's short. You should be happy within that lifespan. You should be happy. Final thoughts from Autumn here on Life in the Balance. And I got to tell you, we could not end the show without giving you at least a taste of Autumn's Elvis impersonation. You heard her talking about it. It is amazing. Here you go. Walking through a party at the county jail. The prison van was dead. They began in the well. <laughs> Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We want to give a special thanks to the folks at Chase Brexton Healthcare who connected us with Autumn. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org slash life in the balance. And you can reach us with your thoughts and questions at lifeinthebalance at wypr.org. This program airs here on WYPR on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.